And to be a part of a culture and not be a part of a culture because you're not enjoying the same food or the same drinks or the same merrymaking is very hard. It makes you feel like, okay, I'm an outsider. I don't really belong here. Welcome to episode 40 of About IBD. I'm Amber Tresca. I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis at age 16 and had two-step J-pouch surgery 10 years later. I'm the IBD expert at verywell.com and the person behind aboutibd.com and the About IBD social media platforms. It's my mission to educate people living with IBD about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. When I first met Tina Aswani Omprakash, I was impressed with her drive to support patients living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis and her commitment to doing the hard work that it involves, including writing, public speaking, and working with advocacy groups. What I was not aware of was the extra layer of challenge that Tina faced in sharing her story because she's a woman of South Asian descent. Tina has Crohn's disease, and after struggling with a J-pouch for several years, she now lives with a permanent ostomy. Tina feels a strong sense of dichotomy because she's a part of her culture, but at the same time, she's also outside of it. Telling her story of living with fistulizing disease on her blog and at medical conferences, which is so needed by the IBD community and brave under any circumstances, has also left her open to stigma. You will hear Tina explain how her father, who like her lived with Crohn's disease, also struggled to walk the line between the treatment he needed and how his culture viewed IBD. It's really a challenge to pin down your disease journey. So many twists and turns, so long, so many really, just from my perspective, devastating things that um, you've had to cope with. But can you take like five minutes and sort of just take me through your Crohn's disease journey. And I know that that's also going to touch on a lot of other things that have happened along with it. Yeah, sure. So I was officially diagnosed in uh, January of 2006. So it's been about 13 years. Um, I actually didn't receive a diagnosis then. I was just sort of told, oh, you're fine. Uh, Within six months of the colonoscopy, I developed bleeding and all the fun stuff that comes with Crohn's and colitis, and I was hospitalized, and then I was told, oh, you have mild colitis. I'm like, this is mild, if if I'm bleeding. Um, It took about seven doctors. So I started in New Jersey, and um, because I grew up in a small town in central New Jersey, and I started locally, and I ended up uh, with a doctor affiliated with NYU, and he helped me tremendously. And I did really well for a couple of years, Um, some mild flares, nothing major, but as the stress picked up at work, um, and my background is basically um, on Wall Street's legal and compliance, Uh, I did a lot of work that related to uh, securities offerings, et cetera, and IPOing, et cetera. And as my hours picked up, the work picked up, I started to get sicker and sicker. I started to lose a lot of weight, get paler and paler. I started to look a little yellow. And um, that was that was really hard. And I um, needed steroid suppositories all the time, steroid enemas. And I just found that I couldn't really eat much anymore um, until I went to Cancun for my 24th birthday uh, with my now husband, which was, it was a beautiful trip, but I came back very sick. 
I was put on uh, Levaquin at the time for a week. It was gastroenteritis, but my doctor at the time thought I should be on antibiotics. Um, within two months of that, I developed C. diff. Never really recovered from coming back from Cancun. And within six months of that C. diff episode, I had a total colectomy. But that six months was probably the most harrowing part of my journey, um, in addition to a couple of other parts of it. Um, definitely had a near-death experience during that time. I lost 50 pounds from December 2007 to July 2008. And I was 85 pounds and being fed by tubes. I had just been fired from my job because I thought at 23 I would not need disability, so I never really, um, I never bought into a disability insurance plan. So I was fired from my job the day before my surgery, and I was taken in for emergency surgery on the 4th of July of 2008. And at the time, the doctors were pretty insistent that um, I needed surgery, but at the same time, they weren't sure that I would survive because it was just it was really far gone. If, if I were to tell you, um, I had, I was, my hair was turning white. That's how malnourished I was, etc. And so my colon was removed. It took several months for me to recover from that. And then I developed C. diff again, because I was put on Sosin for a few months, um, through a pick line after my surgery, because I had abscesses. It was, there were a lot of complications. Anyway, my J-pouch surgery was done over the course of four surgeries because I just couldn't tolerate it. And um, I went through that fine, other than the C. diff episode in between. But before my takedown surgery in February of 2009, I already had pouchitis. And it was very uncomfortable. So I was on antibiotics from before even my takedown surgery. And it turned into chronic use of antibiotics. I went back to work. I got a new job at the same company, and um, I really struggled. And it turned into chronic pouchitis, and within a couple years, it began to fistulize. And when I say fistulize, I mean, you know, it was perianal disease, so it was fistulizing into the lady parts, which was very devastating because I had just gotten married. So that was very difficult. Um, after the first fistula, they wanted me to retry biologics again, and I did, um, and I failed them all, whatever was available at the time, Humira, Antivio, Remicade. I had anaphylactic shock to reinducing um, the reinduction of Remicade, and um, at that point I was told, look, you need to, you need to lose this pouch, because in between, I even tried diverting the pouch and having a temporary ostomy, continued to fistulize. So at this point, had the pouch excised, this was December 2014, so I had the J pouch for six years. And it was just, it was a royal pain in the ass for six years. Um, it might have in some ways been worse than the colon for me. I realize that's not everybody's experience, but for me it was very difficult. And they told me at that time that they think this is Crohn's disease, just the way it's presenting. So that was a really hard diagnosis to take, um, but I got through it, um, had the J pouch excised, but within a couple weeks of excision, there were problems. Uh, several abscesses, and the wound on my bottom was just not closing. So I went to the Cleveland Clinic to get a second opinion, 
And they were like, well, there's bits and pieces of J pouch and rectum left behind. Yeah, and that I had like this massive pelvic abscess uh, where the J pouch ones was, and it was pretty large. It was like nine centimeters or something like that. And it was multi-loculated, so nobody could really break into it. So they suggested taking, re-excising the pouch and taking a flap from my leg to fill the wound because they thought it would be too large. I, the surgeon there was like, I can't guarantee that your Crohn's won't attack the flap. That wasn't good enough for me. So I went to Mayo Clinic. I suffered through all of this. Um, they did, the Mayo Clinic did several corrective surgeries, um, left a wound vac. They couldn't go through the bottom because it was too scarred, so they created a wound the size of a small football um, on the left side of my butt. And um, it took a few months to close. I'd say about three months total to close, but I was in the hospital for about five weeks with the wound back. But it worked. They put me on Stellara after that and at a much higher dose than what was what it was being tested at. So it was in clinical trials. And um, it took a good six to eight months, but finally I, I started to gain the weight back. I started to be, I didn't even know what having a personality was like at that point because it was like, it was nine years after my diagnosis that I'm finally coming out of this. But in the midst of all that, I started developing all these other issues. Um, I mean, throughout, throughout this entire nine-year journey, you know, I had developed arthritis, I had developed pyoderma gangrenosa, marathema nodosum, sweet syndrome, hydratinitis suppurativa. Like, I could go on and on, just trying to manage all these things. And then on top of that, um, in this course, I developed inclusion cysts in my pelvis, asthma, allergies, sinusitis, vertigo, migraines. Like, it's just, it was this never-ending list. So even though my Crohn's had calmed down a bit, um, all these other, like, it was like a pipe. You fix one thing and 20 others, like, break open. And um, what I'm dealing with now, uh, just to sort of wrap up this part, is potentially a diagnosis of endometriosis, potentially some kind of obstructive disorder um, because I'm struggling with chronic constipation and potentially some kind of pelvic hernia. So I'm trying to get those squared away and see if there's treatment options for those. But that's kind of what's on the table right now. I'm a little bit in shock because I didn't know all of that, um, <laughs> even though we've talked many times and have worked together. But I think it's important to um, lay all of that out. And so that, especially when people follow you on social media and are familiar with your blog and the work that you do, that they understand um, all of the different parts of what you've been through. Because it's a lot. It was a lot. It's a lot. And I, I think just saying to people, oh, you know, like people ask all the time, so how many surgeries have you had? I lost count. It's been, it's over 20. But it's not about the number of surgeries. It's just there's so many twists and turns, like you said. And with each twist and turn, how do you create your new normal again? How do you figure that out? Because every disease, every chronic illness that you accumulate is different. Yeah. And Tina... We're in your apartment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in New York City. And um, I'm looking at some of your wedding pictures yes. on the wall. So can you tell me a little bit about your background? Um, so I'm South Asian American. Uh, my family is from Karachi, Pakistan. But after the India-Pakistan partition in 1947, my family moved to India um, because we're Hindu. 
So my family came here, uh, my father came here first um, in the early 70s, and he also had Crohn's disease, uh, which is considered very, very taboo in my culture. It does run in my family. My father, his sister, and apparently their aunt, even in Karachi, um, she might have had some form of IBD, cancer, we don't know, because it was in the 40s, and she died. She bled out. So it's one of those things that runs my family. We don't, we're not supposed to talk about it. I'm, of course, talking about it, which um, has been quite a struggle to do. Not going to lie. Yeah, and in this role that you've taken on, which I'm so grateful that you have because it's, I know it's uh, personally and professionally difficult in uh, advocating for minorities with IBD. Um, You've written about your dad. You've written about his coping with Crohn's disease or not coping with it, as you know, um, you can tell us about that, though. But how did culture play into how his disease was managed? And this was this would be the seventies and eighties, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so my father had Crohn's disease. Uh, he too was originally diagnosed with uh, ulcerative colitis. They changed it to Crohn's um, pretty quickly. Uh, he refused surgery, and culture really played into this dynamic, from what I understand, because it was 1977, he was here, and um, he didn't think he would be able to get married. Mm-hmm. You know, as you might know, our culture favors arranged marriage, and so he didn't think anybody would want to marry him with a permanent ostomy, and they didn't really have good options for, like, pouches, etc. back then nor did they have options for biological agents. So he was put on, because he didn't opt for an ostomy, he was put on prednisone for a number of years. Um, And as you know, that comes with a ton of side effects. So I think culture really played into um, his decision towards not having surgery, but also in terms of not talking about it. So this was something that was not discussed when um, he got married to my mother. It, it's considered so taboo, the bowel issue. It's, it's up there with like mental health issues, with being sexually assaulted or raped. Um, it's, and having a bag on top of that, having an ostomy on top of that, it's from you know people that I've interviewed in India and even in Mexico and other parts of the world, People get divorced over these things. They lose their jobs over these things. Um, they're left in a bathroom with newspapers on top of them um, because they don't have proper access to supplies. It's really deeply stigmatized in many parts of the world. Um, so to come out, share my story, has been very, very difficult. Um, and that too, as a young woman, um, to disclose that I have an ostomy, that I live with a bowel disease when I look perfectly fine on the outside. It, it was like basically taking my world and taking a hammer to it, you know? <laughs> and, but at the same time, I knew that this was a very necessary thing to do because people aren't doing it and because there's such an unmet need for it. Um, and, I, you know... It, it's really one of those things that I have a deep passion for because I've felt so much stigma myself over throughout my 20s and into my 30s. I wonder if you would contrast your treatment decisions and how your culture has 
affected your treatment or maybe not affected your treatment decisions because I feel like you probably would have died had you not done what you did. Well, it's an interesting point that you make. Um, the, my culture did play into it. So one of the things with my father was because he took prednisone, et cetera, a lot of our extended family was like, maybe he should have done more natural things. There's Ayurveda, there's homeopathy, there's naturopathy, there's all these other things. And maybe he would have survived if he had done that instead of prednisone. Mm -hmm. Guess where all that pressure went? Me. So remember that six month period that I told you about when I lost 50 pounds? Guess what I did? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I got so much pressure from my family and I really had no idea, like in terms of like what I should be taking, what I should not be taking, and like trying to wrap my head around the Remicade option, trying to say no to prednisone, even though I did give in to prednisone for a few months. Um, trying to wrap my head around the medicinal options, but also the pressure coming from not just my family, random people um, from society who were like, you know what, this happened to your father, you really should try Ayurveda, you really should try homeopathy. And forget my father's side, this is just the number one step that I've just heard a lot about in the South Asian community, that they defer towards their own traditional practices. Um, and in being a part of a lot of the support groups, some of these closed support groups in South Asia and around the world, really, because I, I don't think this is just a South Asian issue. I've heard it in Latin America, in um, many parts of Asia, that they prefer to use their own traditional medicines to try to treat this first. And I hate to say it, it nearly killed me. It nearly did. Um, and if I had to go back in time, I would have taken, I mean, there was step therapy in the, in the way, but like I would have, if I could have, I would have taken the Remicade much sooner. Um, had I not had all these traditional practices in the way and step therapy in the way. So it's kind of like a two-pronged thing that was going on for me. So then you've got all this background, um, your personal background, and then the cultural background. What's it like for you to go to a wedding or to go to a holiday with, your, <laughs> with the people in your family who now know for one reason or another, either they know because you've been open about it uh, interpersonally, but you've also been open about it through your blog, on your crowns, which now I understand why it's called that. So, <laughs> so tell me what, uh, what's it like to go to family parties these days? So let me just backtrack quickly. Um, when I did come out with my story, a lot of relatives and friends um, who read the story were like, we thought you just had a small stomach problem. Mm -hmm. I actually did not talk about it. It was so taboo that... I would rather go to events and look normal than not. And it was it was a blessing and a curse at the same time, if you can understand what I mean. So um, I tried really hard to fit in. It just wasn't jiving with who I am. It wasn't in alignment with who I am. Um, but going back to your original question about weddings and holiday events, 
holidays are really tough. Um, not only do we have, you know, some of the traditional American cooking, but we also have a lot of the South Asian cooking. And as you know, South Asian cooking is very spicy. And I happen to marry um, a man who's from uh, South India, and their cuisine is a whole other level of spicy. It's fiery. <laughs> um, and for the longest time, I felt like when we were dating and in the early stages of our marriage, I felt like I should eat the food in order to make our families happy. It was one of those things that I kind of gave into and really, really suffered through. And from what I understand, my, my father did the same thing. And it literally like excoriates your insides. And so I learned real fast that I can't do that anymore. <laughs> Um, I started carrying my own food to holiday events. And of course, I would stand out and then I would go upstairs or I would go into another room and eat my own food. It was very isolating. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Um, similar things happen at weddings. So with weddings, what what's even more difficult and my my wedding especially um, is the outfits. I love them. They're so much fun. They're so full of life and color, etc. But when you have to go to the bathroom, wearing a sari is really difficult, um, especially if you have an ostomy or a J-pouch. Um, it's one of those things that you ha really have to work with and maneuver. And if you're as clumsy as I am, <laughs> it's not really something that you do with a lot of finesse. Mm -hmm. So that's one aspect of things. Um, but the food at weddings can be difficult, too. And also um, the questions, why aren't you drinking? Why aren't you, you know, eating everything? I would carry a lot of my own food to weddings even, and I would step outside to eat it. And it was just like, I felt like I would stick out like a sore thumb. And to be a part of a culture and not be a part of a culture because you're not enjoying the same food or the same drinks or the same merrymaking is very hard. It makes you feel like, okay, I'm an outsider, I don't really belong here. But at the same time, that's exactly where the name of my blog comes from. Own your Crohn's because I can't live that kind of life anymore. Mm -hmm. This is me, this is who I am, take it or leave it. And if that means I carry my food to events, that means I carry my food to events. If that means that, you know, I can't wear a sari that day and I wear like a simpler Indian outfit, <laughs> that's what I do. It's, it's one of those things that you really have to come to terms with and accept. And just in my experience, I've found that other people accept it if you accept it. It's taboo everywhere. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, Talking, talking about poop is taboo everywhere. But it's definitely more challenging in, in certain cultures or even in certain individual families. So what would you tell people going through something similar so that they can sort of come out the other side and... To a place of peace, really. Absolutely. I've had actually many conversations with people about this um, from various countries, and a lot of them are worried about what their parents are going to think, um, or that they, their parents are going to blame them for this disease. Are they drinking too much, too much alcohol? Or are they just eating really poorly? Or have they done bad deeds to deserve this? Like, that seems to really be one of those things that people always come to me with, like my parents are gonna blame me for being a bad person. 
And it's finding that parental support and validation is really hard. So I find that a lot of the younger folk tend to give in, especially when it comes to traditional medicinal practices, um, because their parents want them to try certain things. I know that's what happened to me as well, is you want to respect your parents, you want to respect your culture, but at the same time, we have to respect our bodies and what our bodies need. So I think there has to be a fine line um, sitting down and talking with your family and saying, I'm, I'm willing to address this. Perhaps I can give this a shot for a few weeks. And if it doesn't work out, I, I move on to something else. Finding that balance um, to you know work with your family because you do need their support when you have a chronic lifelong illness. Um, that's usually what I suggest is that, you know, if it makes them more comfortable to do it this way, that's fine. But don't let so much time pass because prognoses worsen as time passes. We know that um, getting nowadays they use the top down approach with IBD. They start with the more aggressive medications because they're finding as a general matter that it seems to be reducing colectomy rates or severity of disease. And I think just emphasizing that to patients around the world who actually have access to biologics. That's another issue around the world is people don't have access to some of the newer biologics. Um, they're really afraid to go up that pyramid and try such an aggressive medication. So that's one of the things that you know I usually talk to them about is if your doctor's suggesting this, there's a reason why. And you can get another opinion if that makes you feel comfortable. You can go to another country and get another opinion if you have the resources to do so. But I wouldn't take this lightly. I wouldn't just work with your diet or, you know, do breathing exercises or deep relaxation or whatever people suggest um, because that's not going to fix this. And I think that's, that's a point I really try to drive home. I agree. That's a very good point. Thank you for bringing it up. Is there anything else that you want to talk about in regards to cultural identity and the interplay with IBD? Absolutely. So I kind of want to go back and explore the concept of stigma um, with regards to inflammatory bowel disease and ostomies, having fistulizing disease, etc. Um, like I said earlier, it is really up there with some of the most taboo subjects around the world. But more so than that, like there is this pressure not to talk about it. Um, there is a phrase in Hindi and Urdu that goes um, by what are people going to think? We often are so worried about what society is going to think that we're not allowing ourselves to just be and just remain in the moment and be okay with ourselves. Chronic illness, ostomy, what have you. Um, and I think there's something to be said about allowing ourselves to be that person. And I think that's really the message that my blog intends to convey is that we're still human beings of our own right, even though we have chronic illnesses, disabilities, ostomies, whatever we might have. And it doesn't matter what the color of our skin, um, what size, shape, you know, what gender we are, sexuality or religion that we prescribe to, we're all human beings. And I think when we stigmatize diseases and conditions, whether they're physical or emotional, we take that away from people. 
we take away their ability to talk about it and feel free about themselves. I know like just being a New Yorker, um, going out, like the first thing that's often asked of me is, so what do you do for a living? How about like, who am I? You know, um, and I think not having worked for so many years, that was a question that really got to me after a while. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm a human being. How about what I like to do? How about um, what it is that, um, you know, keeps me going? How about like, like what sort of interests or hobbies I have? And I think that's kind of the, the message that I want to convey is that we're all human beings and that we're not just our job or career that, and, and we're not just our chronic illness or disability either, that it doesn't really matter where we come from or who we are, we're all still human beings. And I want to sort of create that equality, create that social justice with, with my blog. Tina, it has been such a joy getting to know you. And I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. I know that it has personally been very challenging for you. And um, what's it like to click that publish button? <laughs> That's a great question. I'm, I'm going to be real honest here. Um, I often have like a small little breakdown when I'm clicking it and then it turns into a massive breakdown when I see the response to it, especially when my story first came out um, or when I published a piece on fistulizing disease or when I published a piece um, for World Ostomy Day. It's it's exposing. Um, it also leaves you feeling kind of vulnerable. But then when you do get that response and you do realize, okay, that this does have an impact, when you do get messages from all over the world that say, thank you for doing what you do, um, because I can show this to my peers. I can look at this myself. I can show it to my parents and relatives and be like, look, I'm not alone. And I think that's really what keeps me going. Otherwise, I don't think I could keep hitting that publish button, Amber. <laughs> I understand. Um, thank you so much for going through this with me and um, sharing so many of your personal thoughts about this. And I want to make sure that everybody can find you. So your blog is ownyourcrones.com? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. And where else are you on the electric machine interwebs that everyone can follow you <laughs> on facebook twitter and instagram um at own your crones so you can find me pretty easily um if you look me up on linkedin i'm tina aswani om prakash in case so you needed much. that repeated oh i know <laughs> <laughs> i know your name which is which is so lovely as i told you i could like you could say it 10 more times if you wanted to honestly i will listen so thank you so much for thank doing you. this with me i really I appreciate, appreciate the work that you're doing hey super listener a very special thank you to Tina for all the work she's doing for the IBD community and for talking with me about her life as a South Asian woman living with Crohn's disease. I'll be honest with you, her story left me speechless for a minute. And as you know, I've interviewed quite a few people with IBD over the years, so that really means something. 
check the show notes for Tina's information so that you can follow her blog and also catch up with her on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to find me on social media and let me know how you are enjoying the show or if you're interested in being a guest. Don't be shy. I don't bite. You can find me all over the interwebs as About IBD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as at AboutIBD.com. You can also go to VeryWell.com for disease information on IBD that I've written, which has been medically reviewed by a practicing gastroenterologist. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. Tina Swani Om Prakash, but you can call me Tina. I can help it. Oh, no, your name's beautiful. And I, I get just, on practice. Yeah, I don't want to get it wrong.